Coming up today, we delve into the details of the EU's big move against big tech power and tell the harrowing story of the destruction of Mariupol's communications infrastructure. You're listening to The Wire Podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Matt Burgess. Hello. Natasha Banal. Hello. And Morgan Meeker. Hello. This was the week when a study into media habits by UK communications regulator Ofcom found that a significant number of kids as young as five use social media platforms. That's despite most having rules that users must be over the age of 13. TikTok is the most popular platform among 8 to 11-year-olds who use social media, Ofcom found. And a herd of European bison are planning to return to UK soil on Thursday as part of rewilding efforts taking place in Kent. The last wild European bison was shot in the Caucasus in 1927, but a Polish zoo managed to keep them alive in captivity. It was also the week when the UK's Defensive Cybersecurity Agency warned that businesses should reconsider the risks of using Russian technology. The National Cybersecurity Centre warned that companies should rethink their use of the technology if they're providing services to Ukraine or if they provide services related to critical infrastructure. And finally, this was the week when artificial intelligence has beaten eight world champions at Bridge, a game in which human supremacy has resisted the march of machines until now. I feel like the four stories there have captured the broad range of things that we like to cover <laughs> here at Wired. Yeah. TikTok, bison, uh, <laughs> war, and the game of bridge, uh, which is just lovely. Natasha, tell me, what did you learn this week? All right, did you know that there was once such a thing as a bachelor tax? So from the times of the ancient Greeks and Romans, men had to pay a tax for the right to remain single. The only way to avoid it is if you were declared mad, if you were disabled, if you were in prison, or if you had proof that you'd proposed to someone but been rejected. And obviously that someone had to be a woman because of historical issues. Right, so in the 1900s, I discovered, in Argentina, the toll was so heavy that men used to pay women who acted as professional lady rejectors to vouch for them, claiming that whoever had paid them off had sort of asked them to marry them, and they'd turn them down. Ironically, if you didn't pay the tax, you ended up in prison, which meant that you wouldn't qualify for actually having to pay the tax in the first place. So there you go. It doesn't seem like ending up in jail would be a good way to dodge a tax. Like that doesn't yeah. seem well, like a good strategy. Uh, yeah, well, that's why people would pay to stop it from happening. But the theory was, you know, men die in war. Therefore, you know, we need more men. Therefore, if you decide to be single and not have children, that's your own problem. So we tax you for it and that will help to fund more war, right? Um, I think I found in, like, in Alabama in 1935, they tried to pass a law that would involve um, men paying $10 um, a year to remain single, uh, but that was that was about £210, I think we found out, Morgan, later on. I don't remember. It was like something like £210 a year, which seems reasonable in a sense. Until you I mean, stop to think about what people are being taxed <laughs> for not doing. Yeah, I mean, that bit is not, is not great, but, you know, it's... Well, earlier this week when you said you had a <laughs> thrilling fact about tax, I couldn't have imagined it could possibly be that thrilling. Um, but you've set the bar high... 
Um, Thank you. I'm going to aim to jump over it. So let me know how All I right. do. So this week I learned about agriosis. Um, I think I've said that right, which is a condition caused by excessive exposure to chemical compounds found in silver. Now, what's remarkable about this condition is, for want of a better description, it turns people into Smurfs. So the best-known case of agriosis is that of Paul Carrison, an American man who died back in 2013 of unrelated causes, who for years took homemade silver chloride solutions, amongst other silver-based treatments, to treat his various health problems. And why was he taking silver, I hear you ask? Well, Silver is a well-documented antimicrobial, right? So you get silver plasters, for example, because they help wounds heal quicker. But the other thing that silver is known for, amongst many things, is the development of photos, right? So silver is sensitive to light in certain forms, and it's used to make photographic film and photographic paper. That brings us back to Carrison. So he was fair-skinned and freckled until about 1993, when he started to turn blue. And this was basically the silver in his body developing as it reacted with the light that was hitting his skin. The condition is permanent, much like a developed photo is permanent, as our bodies have no way to deal with silver. We can't sweat it out, we can't pee it out, we can't poop it out. Once it's there, it's there, and your smurfy fate is sealed. So that's what I learned. (laughs) Smurfs, they're real, don't you know? I've got a question. Yes. So you said you said that there are some um, antimicrobials that have silver in it and that it's used for the development of photos. But what was this guy, Paul, using it for? Do we know? What was um, his reason for he telling had a, he you? Had a bu- he had a bunch of different health conditions. There was another, okay. um, I think it was a libertarian candidate for the US Senate um, in the late 90s and early 2000s who took silver, home, like homemade silver treatments Um, because he was worried about Y2K. And his concern was that Y2K would make it impossible to get antibiotics. So to prepare for that, he filled his body with silver, which has antimicrobial properties. The problem was Y2K didn't really do anything. um, And he also became a bit smurfy. Um, So it works on the outside of the body. Silver definitely has antimicrobial properties outside the body. But what is true out isn't necessarily true in. So Carrison claims that his silver treatments helped with some of his conditions, but science the science is still very much out on this and you really don't want to end up like look the guy up. He is very smurfy. Yeah, but how what kind of blue? That's my other question. What sort of blue are we talking about? Are we talking periwinkle and navy, like an indigo? Okay, take a take a take a brief pause and, and take a brief brief pause if you're listening to the podcast. Open up your favorite search engine and type in Paul Carrison. K A R A S O N. He basically looks like Papa Smurf. Wow, I'm looking at him now and he's purple. Yeah, sort of a sort of a bloody blue in a way. He's pretty but smurfy. Is it, is it a health problem to be that colour? I mean or is it just kind of an aesthetic problem? Um, so few people have done this to themselves um, that there isn't a huge amount of scientific research into it. Needless to say, you shouldn't be putting self-prescribed medications into your body. Um, it's not a good idea. Um, and it's not, it's not a great look unless you really want to look like a Smurf. So that's what I've got. That's what turns your face blue. 
But this week, I found out why my... Well, this week, we found out. I tried a good segue and I missed. This week, <laughs> we found out what might just make Big Tech red with fury. Natasha oh, and Morgan, nice. tell us some more. That was good, James. Thanks. Um, <laughs> so on Friday of last week, European MEPs finally had a breakthrough on a much anticipated bit of legislation that could rein in the power of big tech in Europe and drastically level the playing field for their competition. Morgan, tell us more. Yes. Yeah, so at one minute past 10pm UK time on Thursday night, I was sprawled across my sofa, struck <laughs> down with COVID and I received a WhatsApp message which read, the negotiations are done. Very dramatic, but this was quite a big deal. That message basically meant that EU lawmakers had finally reached an agreement on the Digital Markets Act, an important piece of legislation that is basically the EU's answer to concerns that big tech's market power is preventing European tech companies from growing past a certain size. So this agreement took 16 months, which might sound like a long time, but it's actually very fast for the EU bureaucracy machine. And the law is basically the EU's answer to complaints that European tech companies have been making for a really long time, that companies like Facebook, Apple and Microsoft operate these walled gardens or ecosystems which suck users into them and trap them there by basically offering them more and more of their own brand products. And that stops users or competing companies claim that stops users from straying to other companies for what they might need. So Sweden's Spotify, for example, has claimed that once users are sucked into Apple's walled garden, also known as the iPhone, Apple uses its app store fees to give Apple Music an unfair advantage over Spotify's own music streaming service. Um, and there's other examples too. So Swiss email provider ProtonMail says Google and Apple use default settings to favour their own apps on Android and iPhones. Um, and German, German cloud provider Nextcloud has branded the way Microsoft bundles its OneDrive cloud storage service with the company's other products as anti-competitive. So the Digital Markets Act is Europe's attempt to use legislation instead of a long string of court cases to stop this from happening. It basically applies this new idea to tech giants that they shouldn't be broken up, as US Senator Elizabeth Warren has argued. Instead, they should be broken open. What does that mean? It basically means that EU lawmakers have decided that US tech giants should be forced to operate more collaboratively. They shouldn't be allowed to operate these walled gardens where they give favourable treatment to their own products. Instead, they should be more intertwined with their European rivals. So in practice, that could mean that companies like Google won't be able to collect data from different services to offer targeted ads without users' explicit consent. Apple might have to let iPhone users download apps from places other than the official app store. And WhatsApp might have to allow users to send and receive messages to people using other messaging services such as Signal. So one of the main disagreements that lawmakers had along the way of reaching this agreement was who exactly should be targeted by this law. Of course, US big tech is the main target, but Washington had warned lawmakers not to make the law anti-American and to target also homegrown European companies. One of the main candidates was Amsterdam's Booking.com, which lets you book hotels. Um, but in the end, however, Europe decided to concentrate its resources on the companies creating the most problems, so that's US big tech companies. That means only companies with a market cap of more than 63 billion 
pounds and 45 million monthly active EU users fall under the DMA. So that means even if Booking.com does end up being targeted, few other European companies will be. So a lot of negotiations happening for a long, long period of time. There were some countries that wanted it to be more specific, other countries that wanted some omissions to be very obvious for European companies so they wouldn't be affected by this and they could just purely target US big tech. But what happened exactly on Friday? What did they agree? And is it a watered down version of what was originally proposed? So it's hard to tell exactly because the full details haven't yet been published. I've heard those details might not be out until May, although slithers of the wording are already leaking. But in general, what's been agreed is what size companies will fall under the scope. And although some of the more headline grabbing parts of the law are things like interoperability, so being being able to use one messenger service to communicate with someone using another, the lead lawmaker for the DMA, Andreas Schwab, told me that he believes the real driver of change is going to be the tools that the DMA gives lawmakers to crack down on these so-called gatekeeper platforms that provide certain services, think browsers, messengers, social media, and that are also engaged in unfair business practices. So these tools that Schwab is talking about include strong penalties if companies don't comply with the rules. The European Commission, which will be in charge of enforcement, can fine a company up to 10% of its worldwide turnover. In the case of repeat violation, that fine goes up to 20%. And if a company is found to be a systematic violator, the Commission can ban them from making acquisitions. There's also the nuclear option. Gatekeepers that break the rule at least three times in eight years could face being broken up. So it all sounds quite radical, quite a big deal. But when I spoke to the European tech companies that basically this law has been designed to help, they weren't exactly thrilled. Instead, there was this real concern that the Digital Markets Act had been watered down. Swiss email provider ProtonMail was concerned about the rules around choice screens. So these are screens that ask users to choose from a list of email providers, for example, when they set up a new phone instead of just installing a default automatically. So Andy Yen, ProtonMail's founder, said he was worried that choice screens would only be implemented for a very limited range of services based on what he'd seen so far. Now, Paul Tang, who's a Dutch member of the European Parliament, told me that even if companies aren't seeing specific answers to the problems in the legislation, there are tools in there to address a wide range of issues. So you've got Article 10, which basically allows the Commission to introduce new obligations for gatekeepers, presumably as the market evolves and changes with time. But think back to November, when Margaret... Vestager, the EU's competition chief, urged EU lawmakers that perfect should not be the enemy of very, very good. So there's a possibility the EU just wanted to create this starting point, even if it doesn't tick all their boxes. Yeah, last year she was very much encouraging for you know EU MEPs to just do something rather than nothing <laughs> at all. So she was just like, pass, pass it. And obviously we've got the Digital Services Act, which is still ongoing as well. And that was another um, bit of legislation that she was keen to see running quickly. Um, obviously, for people outside of Brussels and uh, people who aren't necessarily EU policy geeks, this all might sound a bit remote. You're, look, you're talking about you know, 10, 20 percent of revenue fines. You're talking about breaking up big tech. You're talking about repeat offenders. Um, all this sounds really remote. W- what exactly will this mean for normal people who are using tech in Europe, what's going to change for them after the Digital Markets Act, which is supposed to come in later this year? What's going to change? 
Yeah, exactly. I think these these laws that are often called kind of landmark laws can often seem quite subtle to everyday users. So if it works as intended, uh, the Digital Markets Act will give users a lot more choice. So you won't only be able to download apps from your phone's official app stores. You might be able to use a small Swiss messenger service like Threema to communicate with all your friends who are still on WhatsApp. And when you buy a new phone, there might be more steps to go through in setting up a new device because by law you'll not be able to just have default apps automatically installed for you so kind of significant but quite subtle changes yeah so it just means that you might have to have fewer apps right if you've got one app messenger installed you won't necessarily need three or four of them to communicate with different people on different apps i mean thinking about the other people involved in this and we've spoken about you know politicians and they're striving to try to curb big tech but what does big tech make of all of this i know that the the competitors you spoke about earlier don't seem that impressed or 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 at least that they're a bit skeptical about what might happen next but big tech can't be happy can they yeah so big tech is not happy they've lobbied hard very hard against these laws uh MEPs have described kind of a tidal wave of lobbying washing over Brussels in the lead up to this being agreed um and when I reached out to state for statements to the tech giants. They all talked about kind of their concerns. So an Apple spokesperson said the company was concerned. The DMA will create privacy and security vulnerabilities while prohibiting the company from charging for intellectual property in which they said they have invested a great deal. Google said it supported many of the DMA's ambitions, but it was also concerned some of the rules could reduce innovation and the choice available to Europeans. That's interesting because basically what they're trying to do with this is, you know, create an equal platform, right? So it's no longer a popularity contest with big tech, you know, taking all like the lion's share of audience. Now, supposedly everyone has equal chance to do that. Um, I suppose in this vision that MEPs have set out, people would have more choice people would be able to do different things and make sure that they don't have a million apps to do a million different things. They might not all default towards WhatsApp or towards using Google as a search engine or towards, you know, any of the the big kind of, you know, Facebook as a social media site, for example. It, it seems like those days could be over if there are sufficient alternatives that are appealing to people and they go, well, I prefer that instead. However, the issues that you mentioned about privacy are quite interesting because, I mean, you know, there was a point where I think you were making when we were when we were working on this piece where you were saying, you know, you don't necessarily have to worry about someone else's email provider when you send an email, you send a message to someone else. They might be, you know, on a Google server, I might be on a ProtonMail email, and it doesn't really matter, right? So why would there be a privacy and interoperability issue here with anything like messaging or anything like search engines? What's the what's the big deal? So I think the big deal or the thing that people are worried about and focusing on is like the technical details which haven't been really put into the public domain yet so this idea that you should be able to use whatsapp to communicate with people on signal how is that actually going to work so alex stamos who's a former chief security officer at facebook described it like this writing the law to say you should allow for total interoperability 
without creating any privacy or security risks. It's just like ordering doctors to cure cancer. So it's a great idea is what he means, but how is that going to work? And it feels like no one has actually answered that yet. Um, Matt Burgess actually wrote about this in a Wired article this week, so I recommend that readers dig that out if they're interested in the debate about encryption and interoperability. Okay, so going back to the sort of overarching theme of this story, it sounds like great intentions, but maybe these measures don't go far enough to please the competition for big tech. Maybe they they go too far when you're asking big tech companies about it. And perhaps no one is super satisfied about what's on the table at the moment, but the details aren't out yet. So I suppose my my big question is, you know, what, what could happen next? Will this act, however, you know, I suppose, imperfectly, will it do the job? And will it create that pl- like level playing field that European politicians have been asking for for so long? So what happens next? Technically, the law still faces a final vote in the European Parliament and among representatives from Europe's 27 member states. But its approval is considered a formality, although it's not clear when that vote will take place. The full text of the law is expected sometime in May, maybe, although it's likely significant chunks will leak out before then. Then there's a deadline for enforcement, which Vesta just said on Friday that she expects will happen in October. So that's when it will take effect. Um, Will it do the job? I mean, that's hard to know without seeing all the details. Personally, I think some of the ideas contained within the Digital Markets Act are quite good, are quite radical. The idea that sending a message to someone should be like making a phone call You don't know what company the other person is using to facilitate that call. It's not important. I think that's that's a good idea. It's quite interesting. Um, But I think the law is likely to find time to take its feet. I mean, if we look at the last major piece of tech legislation the EU introduced, the GDPR, the law did reframe discussions about how people give their consent online, even if its enforcement was clunky and it proved difficult to hold companies violating the rules to account. But I think speaking to EU lawmakers, there is definitely this sense that they have been paying attention to what didn't work with the GDPR, and they've tried to avoid a repeat of those things. So, for example, the Commission is in charge of enforcement this time, not member states. Um, So whether this will create a new generation of European big tech that can rival Silicon Valley is, is hard to say. Europe's existing biggest technology companies are not actually platform companies that are competing with the likes of Facebook and Google, so maybe this law is focusing on the wrong area, I don't know. But Matt, I mean, maybe you have a less positive sense of the Digital Markets Act after working on your story about interoperability. Yes, I've only really looked at this one element around interoperability between messaging apps and whether that can be practical or not. And uh, from a a technical point, as you sort of said, Morgan, there seems to be a lot of concerns from people in the security and engineering world about if these uh, sort of like bridges can be built between one app uh, and WhatsApp or iMessage or something like that and preserve security. Um, There was some of them that also made an interesting point to me that was like, if you're doing this, you are essentially moving towards a system that is more like SMS or email, for instance, and those sort of platforms or those sort of ways of messaging aren't necessarily super popular or super, um, they're not experiences that I particularly enjoy as a as a user. So I think that you've got one of those elements of like, if you do make all of these uh, messaging, messaging apps using the same sort of standards and, and processes, basically, um, will there be that much difference between them? Will um, there actually be a uh, cause for somebody to use a smaller app when uh, 
Um, they could just be, they'll be using exactly the same experience as they get on WhatsApp or iMessage or another platform. So there's a bit of this that's like, um, while it's obviously uh, the commission has spent a lot of time and the parliament and all of the European legislators have spent a lot of time putting the thought into trying to balance privacy and also uh, sort of competition. It's like, how will this really unfold in practice and, and work? We'll include a link to matt and morgan's stories in the show notes and if you've got any questions uh, about the digital markets act or if you feel that this idea of platform interoperability is an inevitability much as we're used to using sms and email why can't it be the same for whatsapp and facebook messenger and imessage let us know podcast at wired.co.uk A note that our second story this week, which is about the besieged Ukrainian city of Mariupol, contains details that some listeners may find upsetting. For several weeks now, thousands of people have been without food, water and power as Russia bombards Mariupol in one of its most brutal attacks to date in this conflict. Until recently, those living in Mariupol had a crucial link to the outside world. They could get online. And then... As you found out this week, Matt Burgess, Russia started targeting communications infrastructure to block Mariupol off from the rest of the world. Yeah, so from the street, the Kiev Star building in the centre of Mariupol is relatively unremarkable. A large company logo sits above the entrance and seven floors of the building uh, on Builders Avenue are covered uh, with a grey cladding. On one side of the building is a Greek cultural centre and on the other side is a nightclub that also includes a bowling alley. Um, And despite this normality, the office of uh, the internet and mobile company has become one of the most important buildings in Maripol during recent weeks. And this is because from inside its walls, it has been broadcasting the final mobile signal connection across the whole of the city. And it's not just because of that devastating moment when... Mariupol's last link to the outside world went offline. The reason this building was so crucial and its removal was such a big, its destruction was such a big moment is because it sits at the centre of the entire of Kyivstar's network. Yeah, so across the whole of uh, Mariupol, Kyivstar has 148 different base stations, um, says Vladimir Lutchenko, the chief technology officer of Kyivstar. And each of these stations is made up of various antennas, servers, switches and other telecoms equipments that are needed to broadcast mobile signals. So you're 2G, 3G, etc., that people use to call, text, and get online every single day. And all of these cities across the, all of these base stations across the entire city have one thing in common that they are linked to this core station that is tucked inside the, the Kiev Star building. Um, so when the power was shut down in Maripol, all of these stations around the city went down one by one. Uh, so he told me that he could see all of these going offline, each one in a row. Um, and basically, the telecoms company was able to keep some mobile connection across the city because they could keep this one base station inside their building online. Before this war even started, and we've talked about this on the podcast quite a bit already, it was assumed that Russia would use cyber weaponry to disable critical national infrastructure, communications infrastructure across Ukraine. But in this instance, in comparison to the satellite attack that we talked about recently, It's not really the case that cyber has been the weapon. In Mariupol, communications infrastructure has just been bombed to death. 
So throughout the war, Ukraine's uh, communication systems have been a frequent target of Russian attacks. So Vladimir Putin's troops have bombed television towers and hit internet providers with disruptive cyber attacks across the country. Um, the attacks generally, if they're successful, cripple people's ability to communicate with loved ones and find out uh, who where they are, if they're safe, uh, but they also stop real-time reporting of the atrocities that are happening on the ground. So in this case, uh, the targeting of the infrastructure, uh, whether that is by taking out the power or by causing damage to physical uh, telecoms base stations, means that essentially information can't get into Maripol, but it also can't get out. And the uh, Ukraine Cybersecurity Agency has also sort of acknowledged that the physical damage that's being caused around the city's uh, uh, not just uh, Maripol, but also wider, means that they have a number of cities across the whole country that are currently without any telecommunications at all. And as we said, Mariupol is now one of them. And as you mentioned earlier, that core station within the Q-Star building was keeping some users at the very centre of Mariupol in the vicinity of that building online until fairly recently. But now, essentially, the entire city is cut off. And early in the war, Ukraine's telecommunications providers made a really important and kind of obvious decision to drop competition and combine their networks to help keep all Ukrainians online for as long as possible. And it's been a huge effort. And broadly, it's been working in the face of extraordinary Russian aggression. But the attack on Mariupol has been far too brutal for that infrastructure and that agreement between telecoms operators to bear. And Matt, earlier this week, you also spoke to Nick Osyshenko, who's the CEO of Mariupolsky, uh, a TV station um, in the city of Mariupol, about how difficult it now is to get information both to people in the city and to people around the world. Nick has escaped Maripol now, but when he was there every day during the war, he would uh, go up to the 10th floor of the building that he lived in. Um, and when he got there, he would turn on uh, his phone because he was keeping it off to keep to save battery. Uh, and at this stage, he would find a little bit of mobile connection around him uh, to just to be able to get online. So Nick would start to record videos to let people know that he and his family were alive. He was posting them to his Facebook page, doing this sort of every single day. And while he he was there he was also reading the news and uh relaying it to other people in the building that have uh not any connection or anything at that time um and as well as sort of living through this crisis he was also the ceo of this tv station in maripol as well the station actually celebrated its 25th anniversary on uh the 5th of march this year and he'd originally planned a big party to to help celebrate and to to reward a lot of the staff but obviously the war broke out a few days before this and by this time the um, tv station was offline um the power took it down he said the station ran on a generator for around 20 hours but they were broadcasting uh during this time nobody else in the city could actually watch because nobody had electricity to turn on their tvs the station has now sort of uh transitioned to broadcasting online in some cases or posting some videos and also sort of sharing things on its social media channels as it was doing as a news organization anyway but sort of this 
studios and this whole infrastructure of this station was also bombed and taken offline, Nick says, when I spoke to him. And he says that at the moment, while he's trying to keep uh, relative parts of the business running to be able to tell people about sort of what's been happening on the ground, he's also incredibly concerned for his staff members. So he had 89 people working for him in the channel. And at the time we spoke a few days ago, he only said that he knows that 41 of them are alive. He hasn't heard from the others. He hasn't been able to be in touch with them. And this sort of sums up the overall situation that's happened around the devastation of Maripol. People can't find out information about the world around them, beyond Ukraine's borders, what's happening in the cities near them, and about their loved ones as well. It's a really distressing and distraught situation for everybody involved. And as you really powerfully outlined there, this lack of information is a crucial issue. It's hampered our understanding of what's happening on the ground. People inside and outside the city don't know what's happening to their loved ones or understand potentially the broader picture of what's happening across Ukraine. And another crucial element is potential war crimes could go unreported as well. So the lack of information has really placed uh, Maripol at the centre of a swirl of disinformation as well. Um, So after Russian troops uh, bombed a maternity hospital in the city, the Russian state used images of a Ukrainian beauty blogger to claim that the attack was staged. These uh, false claims have now been thoroughly debunked, but uh, the images used from the ground uh, were used to basically come up with a bunch of conspiracy theories about uh, the the potential that this attack was staged, which it obviously wasn't. And it sort of shows the struggle to understand what is going on in such a complex information environment. So everybody that I spoke to who had escaped Maripol uh, said that food, water and getting to safety were obviously the the priorities for everybody that's living on the ground there. And they were the priorities for themselves when they were still there. But they also then highly uh, among the list mentioned that the ability to access information online to speak to the people that you love for and care for or work with was super important as well. So Alicia Little, uh, who's a recruiter who worked in Maripol, uh, said she escaped from the region in general uh, using the humanitarian corridors that have been set up around the city. Uh, but she didn't know what she was going into when she uh, was escaping. Um, she managed to find out about the corridors, which have actually been used uh, People escaping uh, through them have been attacked by Russian troops if they've done so. But she found out about this corridor when she had two hours of mobile connection one day and could speak to her sister. She said that she packed up her and her dad, packed up her belongings in sort of 20 minutes and then left the city. And she said that it felt like even though they're escaping, they were going into a situation where they were completely blind to what was around them. And there's a quote from Osashenko, the TV channel CEO that you spoke to, that really captures the horror of what's going on in Mariupol and why the communications blackout is such a huge blow. So he escaped with his family uh, and including his 12-year-old son on um, March the 15th. Um, And even though he was living in Maripol at the time, uh, he said that he couldn't believe the destruction around them. He said he was completely shocked by the state of the buildings uh, as he was driving out of the city on that day. Um, And he said... I told my child that he must look at the sun. All around our car and other cars on the streets were lying dead bodies. Dead bodies of children, dead bodies of women, dead bodies of men. And despite the devastation and destruction, we are still getting news from Mariupol. So you've received images of the Kyiv Star offices, which were taken on March the 19th, the day it was 
completely destroyed, which show a pile of rubble and debris which is scattered across the street, and it's it's just completely destroyed. And remarkably, up until that point, Keevstar's engineers had worked tirelessly to keep Mariupol online. So some of the efforts of uh, engineers working across the country for Kievstar and other uh, companies in the space have been completely uh, heroic. We've heard of uh, people, uh, telecoms engineers there working throughout the war to try and repair equipment when they can do. There's also efforts of um, communities, volunteers, I was told, um, just plugging in generators to telecoms towers nearby in their villages because they have a generator they know how to work it they can hook it up to the hook it up to the station and get people online just as uh, a makeshift effort to do so there so there are extraordinary lengths going um going on to try and get people to be able to communicate with others and for two weeks at the start of march kiev's engine kiev stars engineers uh, kept the last base station in Maripol online manually. Um, every morning, two of the company's engineers would go to the offices and power up a diesel generator they connected to the telecoms equipment. Once it was powered up, some communications were restored to people around the city. The connection might not have been spotty, might have been spotty, but it also allowed people a few precious minutes to get online. And at night, um, the generator was powered down and uh, turned off. Um, Lukashenko from uh, the telecoms company doesn't know what happened to the engineers who were keeping the service live for thousands of people. Uh, and he says that unfortunately one day the Russian troops came, they entered into the building, they locked the guys into the basement and ceased all connections. And he said that although it's not been possible to verify this from Wired's perspective, since that time he has not heard from these engineers at all. He said he doesn't have any information about them or know where they are. It's a harrowing story and we'd ordinarily end the podcast on maybe a bit of an upbeat note, but I think we'll end this week's show by wishing everybody in Mariupol um, the very best uh, and hope that this war can come to an end somehow soon. That's it from us this week. Take care. Goodbye.